Hello, I'm Danny Aiken, president of Southeastern Seminary. This podcast is a variety of audio resources from around Southeastern. To learn more about Southeastern, visit scbts.edu. We live in unusual times. Isn't that true? This is a first for me. I've spoken here at Southeastern a number of times, but never here on the lawn. But what a beautiful night. What incredible testimonies um, that were out there. Um, I, uh, I even asked when they invited me to come speak, I'm like, surely you're not going to make me wear a coat and tie. And they said, no, we want you to dress. This is literally what they said, dress like you would on a mission trip to Brazil. And I said, oh, like Danny Aiken dresses every single day. That's kind of what I, how I'm hearing that. Is that right? Um, but man, what an amazing, uh, what an amazing evening. Um, and so I hope that, uh, everybody can pay attention. I realize when we're outside, there's a lot of things going on. I heard last week, a shirtless jogger with delighted everybody. So Danny has promised not to do that again this evening. And so, um, Hey, listen, I got, um, uh, by the way, just, uh, I feel like this is a really awkward thing to say, but since I have walked onto this um, yard area, there is a like gnat that has just decided that this area of my face is where he wants to hang out. And I, I, it's like a messenger of Satan to afflict me in the flesh while I'm up here because I keep smacking it and I can't get it. Uh, so if you just see weird gyrations happening up here, you have been warned as to it's not, not me being crazy. Um, hey, if you got a, well, no, I got commercials. I got commercials. Um, first of all, uh, there are, are a couple things that are back there. The North American Mission Board provided you with a water bottle. Um, and uh, in it is, along with that comes, uh, it, it's a free study. They have a book coming out here in a few weeks um, called What Are You Going to Do With Your Life? And it basically is just presenting a question that says, hey, one of the biggest myths we have in the, in the, the Christian community is that calling is something that a few of us experience in a mystical moment. Really, every believer is called to leverage his or her life for the Great Commission. Uh, the question is no longer if you're called, the question is where and how. And it just kind of unpacks that. Well, they've um, got, a, uh, they've got a, a study that goes along with that, that they're giving out for free. Um, and so they also asked me to tell you, again, this is from the North American Mission Board, not from, um, from me personally, so I want to give them credit for it. But they wanna, they're willing to give away um, 300, uh, up to 300 copies of that book to uh, you Southeastern students. They will only do it for uh, the first 300. All you have to do is text, make sure you get this number right, 888-123, that's the number, 888-123, and just text the word GOING, that's it. G-O-I-N-G, in case you don't know how to spell basic English words, um, text GOING to 88123, and for the first 300, uh, they will send you a free copy the very first second that it comes out. Um, so G-O-I-N, whatever you pronounce, GOING, um, 888-123. By the way, just um, as some of you are doing that, I'll kill a little bit more time here. Um, the, uh, uh, you know, part of this, uh, really, it's part of something we're doing in the SBC called Go To. Um, Go To is essentially telling college students and Southern Baptist churches all across the nation that the first two years after you graduate, why not spend those, at least those first two years on a church plant somewhere? Whether you do it through something like the Journeyman or ISC program through the IMB, or whether you do it through the North American Mission Board on a domestic church plant, 
you know, we tell all the students at our church where I pastor here in uh, the Triangle, we tell them, you got to get a job somewhere, so why not get a job in a place where God is doing something amazing? Why wouldn't the kingdom of God be the largest factor that determines where you pursue your career? Um, I realize that many of you are here because you were called to ministry, uh, but I would say that, that both the IMB and North American Mission Board are ready to help you get started by having some really strategic places, putting you with a team of people, either domestically or internationally, to start a church and to get some of the most incredible experience you'll ever get. Because I can tell you, having done this um, between my two graduations at Southeastern, master's and PhD, um, serving in Southeast Asia, it was the most formative years of my life, taught me more uh, about ministry and the Great Commission than just about anything else. So it's go2years.net. That's a second commercial. And the last one ties into that. And that is, you know, one of the things at the Summit Church that we love to do is be able to play a part in um, the role for some of you as you develop. And so we have a thing called the Summit Institute. And the Summit Institute really is essentially an internship program that matches you up with various pastors at our church, um, kind of gives you both uh, content and character training. They match, it's designed to match what you're doing here at Southeastern to really help you develop in the time that you um, are here. And so uh, in one of the things back there is a little card that just has uh, some information about how to get a little QR code about how to get that conversation started to see if it, it would fit you and really help develop you over the next few years. It would be our honor to do that. Uh, there are also people back there, I think they have gray shirts on that say Summit Church on there some where uh, they would love to be able to have that conversation with you uh, just about whether or not that fits. By God's grace, listen, there's a lot of great churches in this, um, the Raleigh-Durham area. Five of the 10, is it six or five? It's five of the top 10 sending churches in America in terms of number of people on the mission field are within a 20 mile drive of where you are right now. And so there's a lot of great churches. Summit Church is definitely not the only um, church uh, that, that's like that. But for some of you, um, some of what we can do might fit that and give us a good chance to walk with you and partner side by side. I would love to get to know you. Others would as well. So you can find that out. SummitRDUInstitute.com. Okay, that's like a full slate of commercials that I hadn't even started. So uh, listen, I love this institution. I really do. Uh, Dr. Aiken mentioned I am twice a graduate. Um, I, I, I think it is... Um, one of the finest, if I wasn't Southern Baptist Convention president, I would say it is the finest institution in the country for teaching you to love Jesus, to love missions, to love the Bible, and to teach it in whatever capacity God um, has given you. And so that's actually what I get a privilege of talking to you about tonight, uh, because you were working your way through the book of Second Peter, and I was assigned the passage, Second Peter chapter 1, verses 12 through 21. In fact, I think that's what I was assigned, but at this point, that's what I'm preaching, okay? Um, this is one of the most important passages in the Bible about the Bible. If you're going to memorize a handful of scriptures that are going to tell you what the Bible says about itself, this is going to be one of the top two or three. Peter, in the book of Second Peter, is defending his testimony and the testimony of the other apostles against the charge that their their stories that they are telling are just part of the larger Jewish collection of stories about messiahs and miracles and, hey, this thing comes along every 60, 70 years and there's a new flurry and these are just like the others and really you guys are kind of beefing up these stories, which they did back then from time to time, um, uh, not the apostles, but other, other, other Jewish leaders to accentuate their own authority. You know that, right? Like, you know, if you, nothing that gives you a little bit more street cred than being able to have some miracles that you have done. And so um, that's the charge that's been given 
proven against Peter is that this is all just kind of made up in order for you to accentuate your authority. So Peter explains in this passage that there are, as I count them, four things that make the New Testament, or might we say the writings of the apostolic community, not every book in the New Testament was written by one of the apostles, but all under the supervision of the apostles. He said there are four reasons that set what we are saying apart from all these other things and I would say these are the same four reasons that you and I are to be devoted, devoted to it. Here they are. I'll give them to you all four at the beginning and then walk you through one by one. Number one, he's going to explain that the New Testament was written by eyewitnesses of Jesus. It was written in the company of eyewitnesses of Jesus. Number two, ultimately, he says, it's the word of God, not of man. Number three, it's about Jesus. And then number four, it's, about, uh, it's a matter of life and death. Those are our four things. Here we are. Second Peter chapter one, Peter says, so I will always remind you of these things. Verse 13, I think it is right to refresh your memory as long as I live. In fact, for those of us who are living now and Peter's dead, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to refresh your memory about what Peter is saying to you. And I will make every effort, verse 15, to see that after my departure, you will always be able to remember these things. Thank you, Peter and apostles for writing these things down so we have them in a book and can memorize them. Verse 16, for you see, we did not follow cleverly invented stories when we told you about the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. No, but see, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Verse 17, for he received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came to him from the majestic glory. By the way, he's talking here about the transfiguration and the voice that he heard um, where God said, this is my son whom I love, with him I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice that came from heaven when we were with him on the sacred mountain there of transfiguration. Let's just put a little bookmark right there and, and talk about our first couple of, of, of observations. Number one, the New Testament was written, according to Peter, by eyewitnesses of Jesus. You see there in verse 16, we did not follow cleverly invented stories when we told you about the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. We were eyewitnesses. The word in Greek there, by the way, for cleverly invented stories is the word mythos, where we get our word myth from, of course. And he's saying these are not myths not exaggerations or made up stories. Interestingly, the primary challenge today to the authenticity of our New Testament is that it's filled with stories that were not direct lies, but are stories that just sort of grew up over time. You've all heard C.S. Lewis's, you know, Lord, lunatic, liar. He's gotta be one of those three. Well, in more recent years, the more popular objection is that he was not Lord or, lun or not lunatic or liar. It's just these things were innocently exaggerated over the years. What started out as Jesus teaching people to share their, 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 their lunch one afternoon and to be selfless turned into he multiplied five loaves and two fish. And what started with him being calm during a, a time where they were out in a storm turned into, uh, you know, that turned into him walking on the water and et cetera. And, oh, he never really claimed to be God. Yeah, he exercised a lot of authority and ultimately they decided to be best if he was God. And so these things grew up over time. Jesus never really said these things. The real Jesus wouldn't. Let me give you four reasons, okay? The New Testament could not be myths that Peter is alluding to here. And by the way, these are not original with me. Nothing I ever say is original with me. You know, originality is the ability, ability to forget where you got it from, and I can do that with the best of them, okay? So, um, but these all come from usual suspects, Tim Keller, C.S. Lewis, Hodgepodge, and New Testament scholars. Um, here they are, I'll give you four of them, A, B, C, D. A, the timing of the writing is just too early for the gospels to be a legend. 
The books of the New Testament are written entirely too close to the events for legends like that to have sprung up because the New Testament was written while the apostles and people who knew the apostles were still alive. It's relatively undisputed that most of the books of your New Testament were written about 30 or so years after the death of Jesus. Some of the main ones being as early as 20 years. And the last one, the Gospel of John, written about 60 years after Jesus' death. That's simply too early for a legend to spring up because when there is a legend and there are people alive who know the truth, they can't really take off. If this had been two or 300 years later, there's nobody around. But when somebody says, well, this is what happened, somebody else says, well, that's not what actually happened. And the apostolic community was united. No, this is what happened. We saw it. Peter Williams, who is over at Cambridge and has spoken right here at Southeastern, says you can tell that these writings are early. He, in fact, it was brilliant because he found a little thing that all the scholars had overlooked he said, you can tell it by the way they spell the names in the New Testament manuscripts. Because you know, you can tell a lot about certain things like if you see Savior spelled S-A-V-I-O-U-R, what does that tell you about the person who used the word? They're from Great Britain, right? Because that's not how we, we don't spell it Savior hour um, here, you know, dumb ways that British people spell it. We spell it, you know, the way it sounds. And that tells you it's from America. Or um, if you were reading an account and it said, golly, that's swell. You know, you would know that's not written any time recently. That's going to be from somewhere back in the 50s. And he says, you can just tell by the spelling of the names and the ways they write things. You can tell exactly when it was written. And he said, it's all within 20 or 30 years there. He said, whereas all the other spurious gospels, gospel of Judas, gospel of Thomas, those language and names show a later writer period or even um, places outside of Palestine. We also know that the most spectacular doctrines um, of Christianity are, are in the undisputed earliest records of Christianity. There's a set of books in your New Testament called the Impregnable Quartet, First and Second Corinthians, Romans, and Galatians. And impregnable means there's really no serious scholar, Christian or not, who doubts that these were not written just a few years after Jesus' supposed resurrection and ascension. And in those, that impregnable quartet, First and Second Corinthians, Romans, and Galatians, you're going to find the core truth of Christianity, the most spectacular doctrine that God came to earth and died on the cross and raised from the dead. In addition to that, scholars will tell you, we know that the earliest Christians from the very first um, time they're out there, they're celebrating communion together. But I can tell you this firsthand because um, I got to take a trip. My wife and I were taking a trip to Israel and they diverted our plane. We had to land in Italy, um, in Rome. We landed at eight o'clock in the morning. It's un, you know, an unplanned layover and we didn't leave till like 12 o'clock that night. And I was like, I mean, that's, if you're gonna do a, an unexpected layover, that's the way to do it in Rome for an entire day. So I was like, look, I got three things I wanna do here. Um, one, I wanna go see the Coliseum because the movie Gladiator was awesome and Russell Crowe in that movie reminded me a lot of myself. And so I thought it'd be a great way to go just kind of tour that. I wanted to go um, and see the Sistine Chapel and then I wanted to um, uh, be able to see the catacombs where the earliest Christians were. So you go down the catacombs and what the tour guide will tell you is um, they said, you know, from the very earliest days, you see one of the symbols wasn't even the cross. It was a picture of the communion elements. And it's like the earliest Christians, what we are sure of is they celebrated the death of Jesus, which raises the question, why would they celebrate the death of Jesus if it wasn't accompanied by a resurrection? That wouldn't, you don't, if you're into, you know, if you're, when you're celebrating the civil rights, you don't celebrate the death of Martin Luther King. That's something to be lamented. They celebrated the death because they believed in the resurrection. And that was something the earliest Christians did. Let her be here. The content is far too counterproductive to be a legend. 
The content of the New Testament is far too counterproductive to be a legend. And this one actually is from Keller, but there's a lot of stuff in there you just wouldn't make up if you were writing a legend to beef up your authority. For example, if you've read the New Testament, you realize that on nearly every page, the apostles are a bunch of buffoons. I mean, reading you know, the stories of the apostles, is like reading an episode of the Three Stooges or watching it. They're always getting stuff wrong. They're, they're mean to little kids, right? I mean, seriously, right? They're bragging about who's the greatest. If there were puppies running around, they would kick them or stomp on them. Matthew records a story in which Jesus calls Peter, Peter, by the way, who became the leader of the church and who would have been the leader when Matthew wrote these things. He records a story where Jesus calls him Satan. Get behind me. Is that the kind of story you would include if you were making up a legend? Right, if you were trying to convince people that, uh, I can't remember her name, the girl got up here and talked about the new church they started. I don't know who the pastor is, but if she were trying to convince you to come there, you wouldn't be like, hey, you gotta come. Jesus called our pastor Satan one time, right? That was awesome, you gotta come here. You wouldn't do that, right? It's just, they put that in there because it's, it's true. Um, the gospels record that women were the first ones to see Jesus after his resurrection. A woman's testimony in those days was not accepted in court. So if you were making up stories to establish the truthfulness of a claim, you would never put women first in your account. The gospel writers did that though, because that's what happened. So it's just too counterproductive to, to, to be a legend. Letter C, the literary form of the gospels is too detailed to be a legend. This one's one of my favorites. People think that maybe these are written up as fictitious parables that had true moral meaning, but were never intended to be taken literally. I mean, here's the problem with that. Um, these, the stories have all these random details that don't have anything to do with the overarching moral meaning of the story. I, I, I promise you, what I'm about to say, you've never heard this preached on. Mark 4:36. Jesus was sitting in a ship and there were a bunch of other little ships there. What is the significance of him telling you that there was a bunch of other little ships there? There is no significance at all. No commentator has ever said, here's what he's trying to say with that. It's just a guy writing from memory. Hey, I was sitting there and there's some other things there. And, you know, it's just, he's just writing for, it reads like an eyewitness account. Mark chapter 14, this is another good one. In the midst of a really serious reflection on the Garden of Gethsemane, one of the most sacred moments in all of Jesus's life, Mark records a detail about one guy fleeing naked. Y'all, that's got nothing to do with the plot. You don't know where it comes from, where he's going. Why is that in there? Because if you're telling any story and a guy runs through it naked, you put that in the story, right? I mean, if we're standing up here tonight and all of a sudden a guy runs back through naked, when you tell your mom and dad about what happened to chapel, you're like, oh, J.D. And then this guy ran around through naked. It's just a guy recounting what, how he's writing from memory. These things read like eyewitness, not like legends. You say, well, well, today we've got this whole genre of literature called historical fiction where authors do that. They put in details to make it sound realistic. Maybe that's what they did. Yeah, that's a good theory, except that genre of literature hadn't been invented yet. C.S. Lewis, who uh, before he became a, an apologist, was uh, just a, a literature um, professor at Oxford, said that to say those who wrote these things down did so as historical fiction is to suppose that they invented a brand new genre of literature, all right, which they then employed and nobody else used again for 1,700 years. He's like, that's just not good. That's not good literary analysis. They're either willfully lying or they're eyewitness accounts. Letter D, last one here. The message was itself too costly to be alleged. As we saw this message that Jesus was Lord and had risen from the dead, it didn't gain these apostles any power or prestige. Now, you know that throughout history, people have made up religious messages, but it was always to gain something. 
power, prestige, to mobilize or militarize people for conquest. The message these apostles preached gained them nothing. In fact, it cost them their lives. We know that from the, the very beginning, those preaching the gospel were a highly persecuted group. Right? Church history tells us that all these apostles would die a very unnatural death. James, good example. James, you know, was the half-brother of Jesus. The secular Jewish historian Josephus says that James became the leader of the Jewish segment of the church, and he was stoned, according to Josephus, for his belief that Jesus was Lord and died and rose again. Now, this is Jesus' half-brother. Real quick, show of hands. How many of you have an older brother? What would it take to convince you that he was God? I mean, that's, that's a hard case to make, isn't it? Like Satan, maybe, yeah, I get that, but not God. And we know that James at the beginning of his life didn't believe. You see, it says even his brothers didn't believe in it. Something happened that convinced James that his older brother was God in the flesh, and it was the resurrection. It was the resurrection, and ultimately James paid for that with his life, right? What would be their motivation to lie? If you're gonna make a story up, that's not one to make up. Like Blaise Pascal said, he said, I believe witnesses who have their throats cut to verify what they said. And that's what we have here. There's really no logical reason to doubt that the Bible is what it claims to be, and that is eyewitness testimony. So when Peter says that, he's got skin in the game. He's like, look, this is eyewitness testimony, and that verifies that. Here, here, here's the second reason he says it's different. He says, because the ultimate author of the Bible is God, not men. Look again, verse 19. We have heard the word of the prophets made more certain, and you will do well to pay attention to it as a light shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Above all, you must understand that no word, no prophecy of Scripture ever came about by the prophet's own interpretation. Prophecy never had its origin in the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. A lot of times I'll hear people say, college students will say, well, wait, well, the Bible was obviously written by men. Men are fallible, so how can you say the words that are written down are the words of God and infallible or inerrant? It's interesting, Peter answers that question for you right here. The answer is, is in the word he uses. Verse 21, the word is carried along. In, in Greek, it's Pharaoh. It's the word you would use for how a ship sailed. Right? When they put up the sail, the wind would Pharaoh the ship. As, as, as men wrote, God was Pharaohing. I know that's not really how you conjugate the Greek word there, but men, God was Pharaohing their words to their destination. When my, when my, when my daughters were little, right? my oldest one's 17 now, so it's not doesn't happen, but um, when she was, you know, a little toddler, two or three, if I needed to get her across the street, especially when she just learned to walk, grab her hand, then I'd, I'd walk with her, right? Like, you know, kind of, now she's doing her, you know, the legs or she's actually taking the steps, but I'm the one determining where she gets and how fast she gets there. Where she ends up is all, she's the one, her legs are doing it, but I'm the one that is pharaohing her to where I need her to be when I need her to be there. That's the concept he's using there. He's like, this is what the, the, the God did with these writers, the Bible is written by both men and God, like Jesus was 100% man, 100% God. The Bible is 100% the word of man and 100% the word of God, right? In that it is of man, it has the distinct aspects of each man's personality and perspective and writing style. If I'd been chosen to write a Bible book, it'd be filled with all kinds of snarky humor and sports analogy and Nicolas Cage references, right? If your president was chosen to write one, God help us, but there'd be Georgia football in there and there'd be all kinds of, you know what, it, it, just, it would sound like our personality. So Peter sounds like Peter and Paul sounds like Paul, but each word was Pharaoh by God. And because of that, Peter says it's infallible, it's inerrant. Number three, he says, because the Bible is a divine announcement about Jesus. That's gonna set it apart from every other religious writing 
because it's not really going to be about rules for you to obey or what you're supposed to do. It's, it's pointing you to someone. Notice how Peter summarizes the whole Bible message, verse 16. We told you about the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's an announcement about Jesus. When I was growing up in church, and I grew up in a very traditional Baptist church, and three to thrive, Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, and Awanas, and we dressed up in little paramilitary uniforms and memorized the Bible, and we were all about the Bible, okay? But I always thought of the Bible as basically a book of heroes that I was supposed to emulate and be a man after God's own heart like David and dare to be a Daniel and trust like a Timothy and move like Moses and believe like Barnabas and persevere like Paul and smack him like Samson. And I, we had, I could do this all day, but right? Or that's what I thought. It's like heroes and you should be like these guys. Or I thought of it as a book of rules to obey. 1,663 commands, I think, is the total number in the Bible. 613 in the Old Testament and um, 1,050 in the New. And I thought Christian life was basically, you know, the more spiritual you got, the more of those you kept. And so being at church was like that, that whack-a-mole game you play at the fair where you, know, you get a couple down and then while you're looking at them, the other two pop up, so you switch over there. And that's what church experience was like for me. I'm always trying to learn new things and like, what are we gonna feel guilty about this week? Got new laws that I gotta obey and I gotta focus on that. I'd say a lot of contemporary teachers of God's word approach the Bible like it's primarily a book of practical advice. Oh, look what it says about leadership and parenting and happiness and money. And Peter would say, yeah, the Bible's got some good advice in it. It's definitely got some commands to obey, but the Bible is not primarily about any of those things. It's not a collection of heroes for you to emulate. In fact, they're kind of disappointing. There's a lot of things about David you should not emulate. A lot of things about Abraham, all right? Don't ever offer to a, you know, Egyptian Pharaoh that your wife is your sister and she should marry. There's a lot of things about that you shouldn't emulate. They're all written to give you a savior that you're supposed to hope in and to adore. The Bible is an announcement that you have broken all the rules. And so is every other religious leader, including Peter, who got called Satan. And Peter's like, the last thing I want you to do is point you to me and say, be like me. This is all written to give you a, a savior to hope in so that when you, when you fail at the examples and when you just fall face down when it comes to obeying the rules, that you'll see that there's a God who came to earth who did it for you, who then died for you not doing it and rose again so that he could do it through you. And ultimately what the Bible is trying to put before you is, 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 is something to worship. Because that's the great commandment, to love God with all your heart, soul, and mind. And if you do that, then all the rest of the law and the prophets just start to come naturally, right? D. Martin Lloyd-Jones, if you haven't heard his name, then at seminary you'll hear about him until you're sick of it. But D. Martin Lloyd-Jones is a pastor of the 1950s. It's interesting, he said that the preaching controversy in his day, how prescient is this? He said the preaching controversy is on whether sermons ought to lean more on the doctrinal or more on the like practical. I feel like what, 70 years later, we're still having the exact same argument. So is it the, you know, is it the John MacArthur types? Or they, is that where it's at? Is that what preaching is? Just, you know, it's like, get your pen out and let's take a commentary. Or is it more the, you know, kind of practical, the Rick Warren types or whatever, you know, whoever it is now and Andy Stanley or somebody that's really gonna show you how your life changes with it. It's interesting, Lloyd-Jones said, well, there's some truth in both of them. Bible certainly is, doctrine's very important. Bible is also a book of life change. And so application is important. He says, but 
the Bible, preaching the Bible, listen to this. He said, preaching the Bible is neither a lecture nor a motivational speech. The goal of a lecture is that you leave with a page full of notes. The goal of a motivational speech is that you leave with a page full of action steps. He said, the goal of a truly preached Bible passage is that you leave worshiping. There is a time, he said, in every message from the Bible where the pen should go down and the eyes should go up and you stop saying, oh my God, look at what all I've got to do for you. And you start saying, oh my God, look at what you have done for me. Because when that begins to happen and your heart begins to worship, then behavior begins to change naturally. It's like Paul Tripp says, if you worship your way into sin, you're gonna have to worship your way out. And that's why me standing up giving you a very eloquent exposition of all 1663 rules and telling you what aorist tense they're in is not going to change your life. What changes your life is being enraptured with a vision of who Jesus is. And Peter said, that'll show you that this is different than all these other things because these are not practical ways of living. It's all about a hero that is the sufficiency and righteousness for all of us. And that's different than every other thing you're gonna find out there. It's about Jesus, he says. Number four, last one. Knowing this Bible, he says, it's gonna be a matter of life and death. Look at verse 19. You will do well to pay attention to it. You need to think of it like a light that's shining in a dark place. You gotta pay attention to it because, because this is light to a group of people that are trapped in darkness and who stumble around in darkness. I never understand, I'll tell you this, I never understand people who say that they believe the Bible is the word of God and don't devote themselves to it. It just doesn't make sense. There's a guy, you ever heard named Bart Ehrman? Is that name familiar to you? He's one of the most famous New Testament skeptics. I don't know what direction I'm pointing because I'm very directionally oriented. I guess that would have to be west over there. So Chapel Hill is, which way is Chapel Hill? Is that west? Okay, so it's over there. Bart Ehrman lives that direction. Um, I mean, he's like, he's like a, a very, very popular, very winsome, went to Moody Bible Institute, lost his faith. Now he's, whatever. So um, anyway, he, so a lot of the students come to our church, Chapel Hill students, go through his class and it wrecks a lot of their faith. He starts out every class this way. He'll look at the class and he'll say, how many of you believe the Bible is the inerrant word of God? It's usually about half to two thirds will raise their hand. He will say, okay, he holds up a Harry Potter book. How many of you have read this book, at least one of them cover to cover? Use the same thing, about two thirds go up. Then holds up the Bible. He says, how many of you have read this cover to cover? Um, I've heard him say this. He says, usually in the entire place, he says, at most one, maybe two. So he says, I look at them and I say, you say you believe this is the word of God. You've never actually read it. I don't believe it. I don't believe you believe it. And I'm just gonna spend the rest of the semester showing you that you don't believe it. Because if you actually did believe it, you would devote yourself to it as a light shining out of darkness. Paul says it's the only effective weapon there is against the lies of Satan. The only one. If you knew that there was a lion that was roaming through your dorm or your apartment or wherever you live, are you gonna carry around a weapon? Of course you are. If you knew that you were subject to a disease that was corroding you inside and out, would you devote yourself to whatever antidote was there? Of course you would. And Peter says we devote ourselves to it because it is the light in a world of darkness. It is by, you know this, the word of God that God accomplishes everything in the world. 
How did God create the world from nothing? It was by his word, by the word he spoke that. John repeats that in John 1, in the beginning was the word. The word was with God. The word was itself God. There is intentionally something mystical in that, saying that when the Bible is preached, there is the presence of God in it. It was a word that raised Jesus from the dead. It was Jesus' word that gave sight to the blind. It is his word that multiplied the five loaves and two fish. It is his word that cast out demons. By the way, you read Revelation, it's by a word that Jesus brings Satan and all of his foes to an end. You, you get to the end of Revelation. Can I just say this? I'll say it. All right. I've earned the right to say this. It's kind of anticlimactic. And all the, they're all arrayed in all their battle. Play, and I'm like, all right, it's about to go down. And Jesus stands up and just says, enough. They all, everything's done. One word. That's intentional, trying to show you the word has the power for everything. It is by the word of God that the sinful soul is born again. It is redeemed. It is set free. It releases you from the power of sin and guilt and shame. The word is light and life and salvation. By the word, God redeems and reconciles and restores and renews. So I just do not understand people who say it is the word of God. And don't read it. Maybe even more so, I don't understand pastors who say it's the word of God and don't devote themselves to knowing it and to preaching it. It's not Uncle JD's leadership lessons that really are gonna help you. It's not my life lessons, it's the word of God because if it were just that you needed, if it's just if you were ignorant and needed some good advice, then maybe one of us could help you with it, but you are dead. Even after you've been born again, this flesh is just, it's always there corroding. I told you that in my opinion, the Greatest actor of our generation is Nicolas Cage and most underrated, okay? I'll just go ahead and own that right now. One of his greatest movies is, uh, I, I, I can't really officially recommend it, so I'm just gonna tell you that it, it's there, okay? I'm not saying anything, so don't write me any angry letters. It was called The Rock. And um, basically the gist of the movie is, um, I'm, I'm, I'm totally about to ruin it. If you were thinking, no, you know what? If you're like, oh, you spoiled it for us. It's been out for 25 years. If you hadn't watched it yet, don't blame me about it, okay? So that's your fault. But um, so basically, um, there's some crazy people that uh, there's a, a little um, weapon that's been formed that looks like a baseball and it's green nuclear gas. And if you, you know, explode it and you're in the presence of the green nuclear gas, it eats your face off. That's the basic gist of the movie. And so if you get in the presence of the green nuclear gas, the only hope you got is, you, is like an antidote that you gotta get right into the ventricles of your heart. And it's like a needle that's like that long. And so at the you know, climax of the movie, Nicolas Cage is fighting the bad guy and in a truly awesome scene, he takes one of the green balls of nuclear gas, he shoves it into the mouth of the bad guy and he punches him in the face. And so the green ball breaks open and it eats the guy's face off and he melts into a puddle. And Nicolas Cage, you think it's the moment of triumph, but then Nicolas Cage, because he's really smart, he thinks, oh no. I am also in the presence of the green nuclear gas. I've got to get away. So he turns and he begins to run and the green nuclear gas starts to follow him. And he comes to the end of the room and here comes the green nuclear gas. So he turns and he runs down the hall and the green nuclear gas comes and he comes to a place where there's no windows and no doors and it's just him and here comes the green nuclear gas. And you think that's it. He's a tragic hero, he's gonna die. When all of a sudden out of his backpack comes the needle and he unsheaths that needle. And I'm telling you, it's like, and you're like, you, you know, I should like, no, don't do it. It's just get eaten. It's just better to die. And uh, he takes it and he shoves it in at the last second and he puts in the antidote and he's fine. And the movie basically ends. So um, 
when I saw that, I thought, that's a really good example of what Peter's talking about with the word of God. Because what he's talking about is he's talking about corruption and darkness that comes from inside and outside. And he said, really, the only way that you are going to escape this is by that living, breathing word coming into you to give life where there's only darkness. The people that you serve or serve one day are going to be dependent on how accurately, how well, and how faithfully you implant the word into their hearts. And in these next few years, you've got a very special season of life. It's not the only season, but it's a very special season for you to know this book forwards and backwards, for you to know every single part, for you to understand the nuances, for you to get the big picture, for you to read books in the Old Testament you never read before. You need to know Habakkuk and Haggai. Here's a good reason. You're gonna meet Haggai in heaven. And one day he's gonna come up to you and be like, hey, how'd you like my book? And if you didn't read it, you're gonna be embarrassed. I would make sure you read it before you get there. You need to devote yourself to it and just become a master at it, become an expert. Like Luther said, he said, if the Bible were a fruit tree, he said, I would have climbed to the edge of every branch and shaken it off until every piece of fruit had fallen off every branch because I want all of it. Charles Spurgeon said, he said, I want the, myself and the people that I preach to, when life cuts them, I want them to bleed Bibline, which just meant bleed God's word. I just want it overflowing and coming out of them so that they think scripture. So that when they're thinking about the world or about problems or about turmoil or conflict, what comes into their heart and mind is scripture. For Luther, he experienced that because he was taken captive, kidnapped, and he said it was the most miserable, I'm just being real here, most miserable time in my life. It's also the most blessed because that's where I really came to know the scriptures. For you, there's gonna be some parts of seminary that are hard and it's gonna feel Again, I love seminary, but there's gonna, times are gonna feel miserable. But in those times of quietness, when your friend's got a date and you don't have a date, that's an evening you can spend with Martin Luther and Haggai. And you can just spend that time going deep in the word of God. Don't waste this season. It will pay off infinitely. In my green room, that's the last thing. In my green room, uh, the backstage where I preach, I've got two on the wall, two pages of very old Bibles. One is from a thing called the Chain Bible. And it was um, in the old, old English translation, so old you couldn't even, like you couldn't understand it. It's like that kind of English. I think they say it's from like 12 or 1300. And uh, they call it the Chain Bible because it was chained to the pulpit. And the reason it was chained is because they didn't want people taking it home. And um, they wanted to make sure that the priest reserved the right to teach it. And only the priest. So the priest controlled the word of God. Right next to it is... Um, one from the Geneva Bible, which was one of the first, you could say the first popular English translation of the Bible that William Tyndall tried to put into the tongue of the common person. And today there's a press named for him, the Tyndall, Tyndall House, right? And so I got a copy of the first edition of his Bible as it came out there. William Tyndall was taken captive by the King of England and, uh, make a long story really short, he was tried, sentenced, burned at the stake. There's a very famous statement that he made as the flames began to engulf him and grow up around him. He said, I pray, I pray and I prophesy that one day the average common plowman in England or in the English speaking world will know more about the Bible than every priest that's gathered around watching this. 
You're here because you have a chance to be an answer to that prayer. And the hero is Jesus, but there's a lot of people that have made a lot of sacrifices to give you the privilege that you have right here, right now. Don't waste, don't waste your, don't waste your moment. We still have 6,000 plus unreached people groups that have no copy of this. You know it, devote yourself to it, and then go all throughout the world, carrying it everywhere that you go. And a great way for you to apply that is to spend your first two years after you graduate on a church planning team. Why don't you bow your heads and let me pray for you and our worship team will come. God, I thank you for your word. I thank you for how precious and living and alive it is. I thank you, God, for this institution, for its devotion to your word, for its professors, men and women that teach so faithfully here. God, I pray for these students that you would prepare not only their minds, but their hearts to hear and to believe. And this really would be the greatest generation that we've ever seen of preachers with power and authority who are devoted to taking the gospel to places it's never been. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Consider giving to Southeastern Seminary online or visiting us for a preview day. For information on how to give or sign up for a preview day, visit scbts.edu.